Good evening, everyone. Welcome back. A special welcome to anyone who was not here last week. We'll cover some housekeeping items here at the beginning. I started last week by saying that I'm always surprised when anyone comes to anything. Um, I'm even more surprised when people come back a second time. So thanks for being here with us this evening. Uh, why don't we go ahead and begin with prayer, and then we'll go from there. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly Father, this evening we call to mind your almighty goodness, your love for us, your desire to draw us closer to you. We ask that during this time our hearts and minds may be continually open to what you desire and what you want for us, knowing that you want what is best for us, your children. As we pray together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so for anyone who was not here last week, some of you found it already. We have the uh, talk from last week on our parish website, and so uh, if you want to kind of catch up as to what we covered last week, I'll do kind of a quick, brief uh, review here in a few moments as to what we covered. But if you want to listen to the whole talk in its entirety, you can go to our parish website, stmarysbismarck.org, and up at the very top, underneath Faith Formation, you'll see kind of three categories, a category for children, one for teens, and then one for adults. At the very top for adults, uh, you'll see Joyfully Catholic. You can just click on there. We have our, our schedule, um, and at the very bottom, we have our recorded session. You can just hit play, and free of charge, you can listen to it right on our parish website, all right? So that's where you'll find it. Perfect. Also, I hope that everybody has the updated schedule. This is the one I handed out last week. For anyone who was not here last week, that's going off a schedule that was in your bulletin. We're in the pews here a couple weekends ago. Um, this would be an updated one. The only change is uh, we added November 6th and removed November 20th. Uh, some of you have heard, of course, by now that uh, Father Austin Vetter was named the Bishop of Helena, Montana. And so both Father Wolf and I are going to be going to uh, Bishop Luck Vetter's ordination out in Helena on the 20th. And so we moved that up a couple weeks to November 6th. So please uh, make note of that if you're going off the schedule at your homes. All right? Also, for anyone who was not here last week, you'll notice in the very far right-hand column of the schedule are chapters to read. Uh, that's the assigned reading. Somebody asked if there's a test or quiz. There's no assignment. All right, this is uh, pretty much come as it goes. But I thought what would be best is just to uh, recap real quick. For those of you who did the reading for this week, the first four chapters, we're doing four chapters per week. And so to catch up for next time, hopefully you could do up to chapter 8. So you'll see November 6th there, chapters 5 through 8. So we're just doing four chapters a week, uh, or a session I should say. It's pretty self-explanatory. Um, for those of you who read it, Peter Kraft is pretty accessible in terms of me not needing to offer a whole bunch of explanation. I don't think there would be. But I think what I would like to do at the beginning is, if anyone had any questions or clarification, I'm by no means a Peter Kraft interpretation expert, but I thought maybe there's something that comes up in the reading that you just want clarification on. And so as you go, as you read, you know, just make a little annotation or a question mark um, if there's something that you'd like to bring to the group. 
um, so maybe we could work through it together. But if not, I'm not going to spend much on it other than maybe once in a while pointing to some key points that he makes. So I think that's it for housekeeping items. So just a, uh, like I said, a quick recap. Last week we focused on three questions. Question one was why be Catholic? Why should anyone either become a Catholic or why should anyone profess the Catholic faith? And I said, really, the only reason that anyone should be a Catholic is no, no family thing, is no tradition thing in terms of what they received from your mom and dad, getting married. None of those reasons are really good enough other than I've come to the conviction that it's true, that I've come to the conviction that the Catholic faith is true. Now, I wanted to kind of offer a, a bit of a nuance in what, when I say that, what I mean by that. So I know that some individuals here aren't Catholic, might be a from a Protestant background or no faith background at all. And, and some of us uh, might be lifelong Catholics. When I say I've come to the conviction it's true, that doesn't mean that let's say I've spent my whole life as a Baptist. That doesn't mean that the Baptist faith in its entirety is false. All right, I just want to make that nuance. So if I say that Catholicism is true and the reason I'm Catholic is because I've come to the conviction that it's true, that does not then mean I have to say that everything I've believed up to this point is false, right? Because obviously, there's a lot of common beliefs shared between the Catholic faith, let's say, and the Baptist faith. Easiest example I can think of in terms of like sacramental practice would be baptism, right? Baptists obviously believe in baptism, right? That's what they're called, Baptists. Uh, Baptists would believe that original sin is removed through baptism. Catholics would believe the same thing. Baptists believe that God, the Holy Trinity, comes to dwell in the soul of the baptized. Catholics believe that too. All right? And so when I say that, I've come to the conviction that Catholicism is true. I want to make sure we hear that correctly. And that does not mean that everything else is false. The baptism example is the easiest one to apply. All right? On the other side of the coin... Obviously, in the Christian faith, there are a lot of different beliefs. The most obvious one, easiest one to explain, would be the Eucharist, right? A Protestant, a Baptist, would not believe that Christ is truly present, body, blood, soul, divinity, in the Eucharist. A Catholic would believe that and profess that. So, when we say that I've come to the conviction that Catholicism is true... When my, let's say, Baptist belief, in a sense, contradicts Catholic belief, I should only be Catholic if I've come to the conviction that, yes, the Eucharist is the real presence of Christ. All right? And so that's one caveat I want to add from that question last week. The second question we talked about last week was, what does it mean to be a Catholic? And at its most fundamental level, to be a Catholic means to be a disciple. And a disciple is like an apprentice, one who follows the master and wants to be like the master. So for us as Catholics, to be a Catholic disciple means I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like him because he is the master, I'm the disciple, and I want my life to imitate his. And then the third thing we focus on was how do you become one? How do you become a Catholic and it's not just about having oil put on your head by a bishop or a priest. It's actually about a true transformation or conversion of heart. 
I have a priest friend, not from this diocese, so you don't have to speculate on who it is. Uh, I got a priest friend from Michigan who was oftentimes asked, Father, when did you decide to be a priest? And this priest had been ordained 25, almost 30 years. And most people thought he would answer that question or anticipate him answering the question, when did you want to become a priest or when did you decide to become a priest by saying, oh, 30 years ago, when I was in high school, I was in college, when I was, you know, whatever. He would always answer that question. And, uh, he would always answer the question, when did you decide to be a priest by saying this morning? This morning, I had to make the decision that I am going to live my life as a priest. The same is true for the baptized. When did you decide to be baptized? Well, I didn't. Or when I was 20, or when I was 30. In some ways, um, when did you decide to be baptized, or to be a baptized person? We have to make that decision daily, to live that identity, because we can very easily kind of uh, miss that. And so, when did you decide to be a Christian? Today. I made the choice today. Right? I made the choice to live my baptismal identity today. All right, so that was a recap from last week. Today what we're going to be focusing on, as you see on the slide behind you, is the story of salvation. I don't know what you guys like dream about at night, but I had a dream last night. Uh, this is true. I'm not making this up. I had a dream last night that I was teaching this class, and it went really, really well. All right? And then I woke up, and I'm like, dang it. <laughs> I have to do that again. It, it went so well last night. All right, you guys had great questions. It was just flowing, so let's see what happens in reality here today. That's a true story. I'm not making that up. So the story of salvation. Now you know what priests dream about. I'm not going to ask this as a question, but I want you to think for a second in your own mind. Um, where's the best place to find a summary of our salvation? When I say our salvation. I mean, the story of salvation history, the story of, of, of Christ, the story of how we are saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the promises that are offered. Really, the best summary of the Christian faith is something that you and I oftentimes, for those, those of us who are, go to Mass on, on Sundays uh, because we're Catholic, is found in the Creed, right? It's the best summary of the faith. The Creed, everyone, and I know we can, I'm guilty of this too, I mean, I would say one out of ten times I'm actually like paying attention to the creed. It's terrible. I need to do a much better job with that. Uh, maybe you're like, anyway, I got other stuff going on. I'm thinking, oh, that's a great homily, bad homily. How's the children's collection going to go? All those things. But really, if you, if you attentively listen to the creed as we profess it, it is a complete summary of our Catholic faith. And it's very, very ancient. It goes back to the 200s, 300s. When the bishops were trying to figure out what exactly is the best way to summarize the Christian faith, they would get into fights over this, right? There's stories of early Christians on who Jesus truly is, getting the fist fights, bishops getting the fist fights. I kind of want to see that again. <laughs> like, I would love to see that. Um, but anyway, um, call me violent. But uh, so this, this, this uh, profession of faith, the Nicene Creed, goes back to 325. So I'm going to just pass it out. So I'm not going to spend, I mean, you, we could spend our lifetime uh, breaking down the creed. In fact, the catechism, I should have brought one just so you had a visual aid to see. The catechism uses the creed as kind of a foundation. 
in, in teaching, explaining the faith. And so, like I said, a, a person can spend a long time on this. The first thing I want to point out for the creed is you'll notice how it's broken down. We say, I believe, four different times. The first part is in reference to God the Father. Obviously, the second part, God the Son, towards the bottom, God the Holy Spirit, and then what we believe um, in terms of the church. And so those are kind of the, uh, the four points. But I'm just going to read it through so we have a point of reference here this evening. Like I said, this is the best summary we have of what we do believe as Catholics. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And so obviously, everyone, if you're ever pressed on the question, so what do you believe as a Catholic? It's found right here in that summary kind of way. Now, to transition a bit from this kind of theological, intellectual profession of faith, it's also important for us to remember in terms of our discussion tonight about the story of salvation and history, our own personal lives, everyone, our own personal lives with our own past and our own future fits in to a much bigger story. That our personal story fits in to the story of God, the story of salvation history. And so as we're going through that this evening, I want us to kind of keep that in mind, that this is not just kind of some vague, academic, intellectual endeavor, that our personal stories fit into this story. Which is then to say this, that my life and your life, that our lives have a purpose and our lives have a plan. As opposed to saying, you know what, life is just one dang thing after another and I just live in this kind of isolation. No, your life and my life has incredible purpose and an incredible plan. Sometimes it's referred to as the three big questions in life. Number one, where did we come from? Number two, why are we here? And number three, where are we going? The story of salvation history answers those three questions. Where did we come from as human beings? Like who or what is our source, right? Why am I here, right? Or why is there something rather than nothing? Or why do I exist as opposed to not exist? And then finally, where are we going? What's our destination? So those are some things to kind of put all this into a more personal context as we go. The story of salvation history, everyone, to put it simply, doesn't really have a beginning. There's no, like, start point. 
There's no point where we say, okay, the story of salvation history begins here, on this date, this many years ago. And the reason is because God does not have a beginning. Right? So when I say the story of salvation history doesn't have a beginning, what I mean by that is because God is eternal, there's never been a time when God was not, and I know that's really hard to imagine, but that's what we profess about God. Let me put it this way. Whatever image we have about God, like whatever preconceived notion we have about who God the Father is, that notion we have is nowhere close to reality. I know that I have an image of who God is, who God the Father is. My little minute imagining of that is nowhere close to the grandeur or the, the eternity of God. And so, just to, to make that point here at the beginning. So, because God does not have a beginning, the story of salvation history does not really have a beginning, but what does that point to? It points everyone, to God's unending love. What the story of salvation history is essentially about is God's unending love. Right? And we have to keep that in mind. So, uh, we're going to break down this evening into three main parts. The timeline of salvation history. First, we're going to talk about creation. Second, we're going to talk about the fall. And third, we're going to talk about redemption. And we're going to talk in kind of very broad uh, paint with broad strokes tonight because there's a lot in there um, but we're going to when we talk about the story of salvation history if you see that term you're like I don't know what that means come back to this three main parts creation the fall of man and then finally a look at redemption and so that's the easiest way to break it down and so first a bit on, on creation what's the first book of the bible Genesis Okay, uh, it's the first book of the old testament uh, the word Genesis, as you might imagine, literally means beginning. We have all kinds of words in our English language that point to that. The first, very first three words of the book of Genesis in English are in the beginning. All right. So Genesis is just a way of saying this is the beginning. And so it would make sense then that creation begins with the book of Genesis. Before we dive into Genesis this evening, a couple notes on sacred scripture. When we see this term divine revelation this got me for a long long time divine revelation it's really not that complicated of a term it just means god divine the divine revelation how the divine how god has chosen to reveal himself right so we believe that god in his almighty love has chosen at some point in history to reveal who he is to us right? Divine revelation. Obviously, sacred scripture is an example of divine revelation. God revealing himself through his word to the reader or to the listener, right? That's one of the main sources of divine revelation, sacred scripture um, in, in his word. However, and this is kind of a big transitional point, the church does not limit revelation to sacred scripture. Let me say that again. That we as Catholics don't believe that 
divine revelation, God revealing himself to us, is simply limited to his word. Why? If I had a Bible and I would say, okay, here is one of the main sources of divine revelation, but why is it the case that the church does not limit revelation to sacred scripture? Because somebody had to tell us that this is sacred scripture. Right? Are you with me? If we simply limited divine revelation to the word of God, how do we know this is the word of God? Somebody had to tell us so. Namely, the church. Right? The church has been given the authority by Christ. We'll get way more into scripture and tradition and all that in a different session. But I want to say that as kind of an introductory comment. The church has been given the task to say what is sacred scripture and what isn't. Let me give you an example. There are all kinds of gospels. We know that in the Bible there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four evangelists, the four disciples who wrote about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. There's more than four gospels. There's the Gospel of Judas. There's the Gospel of Thomas. Why don't we read those? Because the church has said that is not the inspired word of God. Right? And so we need the church in order to offer to us what is the inspired word of God. And the church has told us that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so, like I said, we'll get more into that as we go. But I wanted to make that introductory comment about Revelation. Um, Second thing I want to mentioned about scripture is that when you pick up a bible it's not like we're picking up a book that you can easily read from start to finish right i suppose we've all tried maybe not i tried when i was junior high school right to sit down and say okay this is the year (laughs) (laughs) this is the year i am reading the bible front to back genesis all the way through to revelation right and then the story goes You get to, like, Leviticus, and you're talking about all these crazy things about Jewish law that you have no idea, and you put it down, and you wait until next year to start again. Okay, we've all been there. That's because the Bible, everyone, is not meant to be read like a book start to finish. If you've done that, great. If you want to do that, wonderful. It can be a great way to do it, Um, but if it doesn't work for you... Chances are the reason is oftentimes we forget that the Bible is not a book from start to finish, but it's more like a library, right? The Bible is like a library. What do I mean by that? When you walk into a library and you walk over to the poetry section and you pick up a book on poetry, you're reading that differently than if you were reading a book about Civil War history. They're different genres. Right? We read poetry differently than we read you know, history. And then you go over to the newspaper section. We read editorials differently than we, re- we read just straight reporting. You have to know which section of the library you're in. You have to know which section of the newspaper you're in. With the Bible, we have to know which genre and so on and so forth we're in. So, we know that the Bible has all different kinds of sections. We have books of the law, like the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? That's talking about Jewish law. We have uh, books of poetry, the Song of Songs. 
We have books of history like 1 Kings and 2 Kings that are actually telling us about kings that actually existed in the history of Israel. Like these are real people. Like King David was a real king, right? And he had a real son named Solomon. We read those books differently. We have the Psalms, right? The 150 Psalms that we sing at Mass oftentimes, actually every, every Sunday, every day. We, we read those differently. Prophets, the Gospels, the letters of Paul. So that's all a precursor to saying when we stop and pick up, for example, the book of Genesis that has some very unique things in it, we have to understand that we're not reading a scientific account of the creation of the world because we're not reading a science book. So when we read Genesis, what are we reading? We are reading a book of theology, right? Genesis, everyone, was written 6 BC. We're talking only 600 years before Christ. King David, who I just mentioned, was king of Israel around 1000 BC, right? King David ruled Israel before Genesis was even written. So we have to keep that in mind. We have to try to understand what we're getting at. So what is Genesis? Genesis, everyone, is classified, the genre would be a poetic narrative. It is not telling us how creation happened. It's not telling us a scientific account on day one, this happened, day two, this happened. Can we believe that creation happened in, in six days? It's both a yes and a no. It's possible that the author of Genesis doesn't measure a day like we measure a day. 24 hours, 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, so on and so forth. Genesis is not telling us how creation happened. That is not the point. That was not the author's intent. So when the author wrote the book of Genesis, what was he up to? They're trying to offer who created and why did creation happen. So rather than reading Genesis of, okay, on day one, this, day two, this, day three, this, we have to ask, no, 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 no. It's about who created, and Genesis would say, God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible, right? We would say that God created, and then we also look to Genesis as to why did creation happen? That's what we'll try to get to this evening. One other aside on the book of Genesis, some people will say, you know what, that's just another one of those ancient Near East creation myths, right? That every single ancient Near East culture had some type of creation myth. And Genesis is the creation myth for the people of Israel. The book of Genesis is way different than these other myths. And we'll get into uh, a couple. The first one is... A lot of the other ancient Near East creation myths, the world is created out of violence. The God, the creator of the, 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 the chief God, if you will, of some of these other creation myths, God created the world out of tremendous violence. And secondly, human beings are slaves to this God. Just think for a second, everyone, how Christianity in the book of Genesis is vastly different than those two things. We say that creation happened out of love, not out of violence, that there's tremendous order. We'll look at the order here in a second. But we would say human beings, we're not slaves to God. 
We're not slaves to the creator. In fact, we find out in the very beginning of the book of Genesis that God created the human person for friendship. God made us for friendship. And so if we're going to just kind of, you know, dismiss Genesis as another ancient Near East myth that every single culture had, there are some vast differences that the book of Genesis sets itself out from. So those are the main things I want to mention here this evening on that. Last week I mentioned that the book of Genesis has two main stories of creation. Remember, we're still in this first part of creation here. Genesis 1, and we'll look at it in more depth, is one account of creation. Genesis 2 is a second account of creation. We don't read these accounts in a literal way. But just because they're not literal doesn't make them untrue. We have to go back again and again to what's the purpose. The purpose is not how creation. The purpose is who and why. All right? So, Genesis 1, the seven traditional days of creation, right? Uh, we hear this uh, every Easter vigil. We hear it a couple times a year at, at Mass. Um, it's one of the more uh, you know, popular texts in, in Scripture, the seven days of creation. Day 1, light day, dark night. Day two, the sky and the sea. Day three, land and vegetation. Day four, sun, moon, stars. Day five, birds, sea creatures. Day six, cattle, creeping things, beasts, human beings rule over. And then day seven, the Sabbath, the day of rest. One of the main things to get out of Genesis 1 in these seven days of creation is this. That God had incredible intentionality in bringing about order in this universe. Right? I love going out to lakes and, and mountains. I love, I love the outdoors. Isn't it amazing just how magnificent of a creator God is and how much order there is in the universe with the exception of a blizzard in October? Um, <laughs> But just think of it for a second. In the fall, the beautiful leaves. In the spring, the new life. Water freezing at a certain temperature that you can walk on and do this thing called ice fishing. But it's just amazing to think, and I could go on and on, to think how much order there is in the universe and how much intentionality the creator had in bringing about the beauty that we experience from, you know, sea to shining sea, so to speak. But those are the main things we want to look at Genesis in the days of creation. Whether or not it happened in seven days, once again, that's not the point. The point is there's order, there's intentionality, but also the last word here, it also shows that God exercises dominion over the whole earth. Right? We as Americans don't like the word dominion. That means rule. That means authority. Um, I've said this before, that we as Americans are hardwired to not like kings. It's why we exist. We exist as a country because we don't like queens and kings, right? But we have to go back to that as, as individuals and, and human beings, that God has revealed himself as having power and dominion and authority, not just over creation, but also over our lives. Um, and it's a good kind of authority and a good kind of dominion. So Genesis 1 offers us that. The other point I want to mention on, on Genesis 1 is this verse here, Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man represents God 
unlike anything else in creation, right? The stars don't represent God. The sun doesn't represent God. The, the cattle don't represent God. Man, unlike anything else in creation, represents God. Because we're told in Genesis that we as human beings are created in his image and likeness. The human person is the pinnacle of creation. It's one of the reasons that we as, as, as Catholics are obsessed about life and protecting human life at all its stages. Why? Because we are the pinnacle of creation. We are the very pinnacle of it. And we have as human beings something that nothing else in creation has. We have what's called an intellect and a will, right? What the intellect does is it gives us the ability to reason and to analyze and to think and to be logical and to be rational, right? We talked about that last week. And we also have a will, an ability to freely choose. And you could say, and okay, dog lovers, I have two dogs, so don't be offended. Dogs, as smart and loving as they are, oftentimes don't have the same type of freedom that we have to freely choose, right? My yellow lab, Fenway, I know he loves me, right? I know he loves me. But he also knows I feed him, right? And I, I take care of him and all, and all those things. We as human beings, we have a different kind of uni uh, ability to choose. My dog, Fenway, can't choose. He just loves food. Right? He loves food, loves food. I would think he would eat all day if he could, right? We can't eat all day because we have this ability to choose and say, you know what, I'm freely choosing right now to not eat this because it's going to make me sick. My dog can't do that, right? He just can't. We have an intellect, we have a will, the ability to reason, the ability to freely choose. Now, what does the fact that we need food and water uh, to survive reveal? The fact, everyone, that we as human beings need food and need water, and we find that out in the book of Genesis right from the get-go, reveals that we are dependent creatures, right? We are creatures. God created us. He is the creator. We are creatures. If we weren't a creature, then we wouldn't need things to survive, but we need things to survive, right? If we didn't have those things, we would die. That's part of being a creature, and we are dependent, like it or not. We are dependent. We need food, we need water, we need those things. So just a couple kind of points there about Genesis. So that's the main thing that Genesis 1 offers us, is the seven days of creation. And I mentioned a few highlights, hopefully we can get from it. The second creation account um, is a bit different. The focus in Genesis 2 is almost entirely on the human person, on we as human beings. God made the heavens and the earth. We're told in Genesis 2, 4, uh, the Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We're told there's two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God says to Adam, right, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. All right, I want to pause here for a second. For much of my life, when I heard this, that there's two trees, right? There's the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And our first father, Adam, was forbidden by God from eating from this tree. 
I hear that and I say, that is so arbitrary. That is so random. Like, come on, God. Are you just trying to show your dominion and to show you can have this, 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 but you can't have that? To me, I've always interpreted that as extremely arbitrary. And God is just kind of exercising, flexing his uh, dominion muscles. That's not the case. The reason that God did not allow Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is not arbitrary. What he's saying essentially is this. I am not giving you the authority to decide what is good and evil. Let me say that again. That God is saying to us, that he has not given us the authority to decide what is good and evil. Only God has that authority. And God is going to spend a lot of effort, if God could spend effort, um, revealing that to us. So watch that in the fall. Um, But I, I hope that makes some sense. That what God is saying is, I am not handing that over to you. Because we don't decide what is good and evil. God decides that, and then he reveals that to us. So what God is doing by forbidding Adam to not eat of that tree is simply saying, I'm not giving you that authority. And so just keep that in mind. We're also told in Genesis 2, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a suitable partner for him, uh, so on and so forth. The cattle, the birds, the beasts, none of that was suitable. God casts man into a deep sleep. He takes rib, forms woman. Once again, even Genesis 2, we're not reading it as a scientific account. We're reading it as a religious, poetic narrative trying to reveal the who, namely God, and the why that we have purpose, and there's a plan for our life. Now, that being said, what can I take from Genesis, okay? If I'm told I can't believe science, what can I take from it, all right? Here are some things that Genesis tells us. There's one God. Not three gods, not 40 billion gods. There's one God. All right? Everything he makes is good. He exercises power over everything. He made us male and female. He makes man, when I say man, I mean human beings. Uh, He makes us for friendship, not slavery, like those other ancient Near East uh, creation myths I mentioned. He makes us for friendship. And he makes us in friendship with each other. We're told in Genesis that the woman shares equal dignity with with man and that marriage, Adam and Eve, uh, would be a description of, of, you know, early description of marriage as a purpose. The purpose of that is love. Life has a purpose, love. And so back to that, those questions I said at the beginning, where do we come from? We actually come from God who is love. Why are we here? We're here to love. Where are we going? I guess you could say uh, love. That's our purpose in life, to love. What, what Genesis offers us, everyone, is that we, as a human race, were created as a united human family. The, the big word that we're going to go back to again and again is this word here, unity, right? Unity. God created us for unity with himself. 
God created us for unity with each other. And what we're going to see in regards to um, one of the great effects of original sin on us is losing this unity, right? We talk about a unity in both a up and down way, meaning God in, in, a, in a vertical way, but also unity in a horizontal way um, with each other, all right? I don't know if those of you who have uh, teenagers might have saw this a couple years ago. There's a book a few years back called uh, Did Adam and Eve Have Belly Buttons? Uh, right? Did Adam and Eve have, it, it was like 199 questions from Catholic teenagers. And I, I think it should just be 199 questions from the Catholics in general. Um, it was a great book. There's a part two of it. Um, did Jesus have a last name? And there's a great section in here on, on creation of man that goes through some of what I'm mentioning here this evening, but all kinds of uh, great insights. And so uh, if you're looking for a, a kind of a nice Q&A type book um, to have at your home or for your families, either uh, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons or this other one, the same author, did Jesus have a last name? So I just want to make a plug for that. The first part of creation we just talked about, what I want you to leave here this evening remembering is that God created us as a united family of God. Okay, that's the bottom line. Now, let's go ahead and look at the fall, Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7, right? So, was it a pear tree or an apple tree or a pomegranate tree? We don't know because we're not reading Genesis to figure out what kind of fruit it was because it is a poetic narrative, not a book of science, not a historical account of the fall. It is a poetic narrative. What does Genesis tell us? That our first parents, by the way, Adam simply means man in Hebrew, and Eve means mother of the living, okay? They probably didn't call themselves Adam and Eve. That's just the Hebrew word for man and woman. Um, our first parents, what we do know, is that at some point, they rebelled against God, who is a source of all goodness. So Genesis is not trying to offer us a treatise on Middle Eastern fruit. Genesis is trying to offer us the fact that our first parents, at a certain point, rebelled against God. <coughs> rebelled against their own goodness and the source of their life. Alright? Let me make this note on sin. Adam and Eve, at some point, sinned. Our first parents sinned. Now, when we hear sin, we oftentimes think breaking the law. 
right? I broke a law. Just a couple weeks ago, for some reason, Real Presence of Radio made the decision to have me guest host on Tuesday morning, and we got a caller, and he was talking about sins, and I said, give me an example. And you talk about speeding, breaking the speed limit. Okay, now, if you break the speed limit, are you, break, are you, are you sinning? I think that's completely not asking the right question. Sinning is not simply breaking a law. Sinning is rebelling against God. And I think a transition needs to happen in our own minds as to how I see sin. Sin is not breaking some law, arbitrary or intentional. Sinning is making the conscious, deliberate choice to rebel against the Lord. Right? Sinning isn't just breaking a law. Right? So, keep that in mind. We use these terms sometimes, original sin. Uh, that's the sin by which the first human beings disobeyed God, describes the fallen human nature, which affects every person born into the world. We lost our original union, our holiness with God. That's what came through the fall, right? We inherited it. We don't commit original sin. We inherit and we have the effects of original sin on us. Sometimes people will use the example of a baby that's born to a mother whose mother was using cocaine during the pregnancy. That child did not make the choice to use cocaine. That child, however, inherited the effects of being in the womb and having the mother using cocaine, right? Those are effects that are inherited, not committed. Original sin and its effects are something that we inherited, not through any fault of our own, but it's something that we inherit. It's something we don't commit. We commit personal sin, right? And the effects of original sin are still on us. One of the great effects of original sin is what uh, the church calls concupiscence. That is our inclination or our tendency to sin. That remains even after baptism, right? So I don't even want to use examples, but we can all think of plenty of them. Uh, those tendencies, those inclinations we have to sin, if you're wondering why you have them, welcome to the human race. We all have them. And it comes from our first parents, and it comes from being part of the fallen, being part of a fallen world, fallen human nature. Uh, St. Paul says it best in Romans chapter 7, why is it that I do not do what I want, but I do what I hate? Right? That's one of the natures of sin. Uh, not doing what we know we should, uh, but doing what we actually hate to do. One of the other things about original sin, everyone, is up top it says we lose our original union or holiness with God, right? Where's that restored? <clears throat> Baptism. So if you're saying, okay, if these effects of original sin still remain, then what does baptism even do, right? If, 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 I'm still, if I still have this inclination or this tendency to sin called concupiscence, if that remains after baptism, then why even be baptized? Because one of the main things lost in original sin is our original unity with God. That united family we spoke about, that was lost. That is restored in baptism, right? That's how important baptism is. It restores that in us. It restores that in our relationship with God. So that's what we're looking at. Creation, 
were created for unity through the fall we have this now separation from god through sin and through the sin of our first parents now before we get too discouraged and we're like well that's really stinks right um notice everyone right away right away the book of genesis so the third chapter of genesis notice how god immediately responds the lord god said to the serpent because you have done this cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals upon your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life i will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he shall crush your head while you strike at his heel that's god responding to the serpent in genesis saying okay because you got them to sin somebody's going to crush your head and you're going to keep striking at his heel remember this is a poetic narrative a scene might come to mind for some of you if you were to go home and read the different accounts from the gospels matthew mark luke or john of the agony of the garden which you just saw here um, you're not going to find any of the uh, evangelists describing a scene where Jesus stomps on the head of the snake. Okay? That's not in the Gospels. I just want to be clear about that. So what's Mel Gibson doing here when he had this scene inserted in his Passion of Christ movie? Mel Gibson knew scripture. And he knew that the very first response of God to sin is the fact that someone will strike at the head of the source of evil while he still strikes at our feet. Mel Gibson knew scripture. Mel Gibson knew the Old Testament. Mel Gibson wanted to show that this, that, was God's response to sin. That he's going to take it on. And that's where all of a sudden we have this transition from the fall to redemption. What does Jesus do immediately after the scene? He's going to Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem. He's going to the cross, right? What is God's response to sin? Well, it's his son, right? And so uh, just to keep that in mind, God is not indifferent to sin. He responds immediately. And that's why we have, uh, this is called uh, in early, in, in uh, kind of scripture, that verse there, he shall crush your head, that scene you saw, is oftentimes called the Proto-Evangelium. Sorry, my dad said, don't ever use different words than English words, and I break that all the time. Um, they're first gospel. Proto means first, Evangelium means gospel. That verse right there, he shall crush your head while you strike at his heel, Genesis 3.15, is known as the first gospel. This is the first promise of salvation, that God is not indifferent to sin, and he came to defeat it. He came to conquered he came to crush it all right that is the first message of the good news all right so god's response god begins in the old testament to unfold his plan of salvation to his people right from genesis right where we have one couple namely adam and eve after that he's beginning to unveil his plan of salvation to one family. He begins with Noah, and we could spend all kinds of time talking about Noah if we had time, but we don't. And then he extends it to one tribe, the tribe of Abraham, our father in faith. 
And then he extends it to one nation, the nation of Israel, and Moses is their leader. And then he extends it to one kingdom, King David we talked about earlier. And then he brought fulfillment in Jesus, who establishes a new kingdom and one church for the whole world. Not just one couple, not just one family, not just one tribe, not just one nation, not just one kingdom. But he brings about salvation most fully through a new kingdom, namely one church. There's this term that's used sometimes called, uh, and this is going to sound too theological, bear with me, okay, sorry. Uh, there's this term called the scandal of particularity. What that means is, why is it that the people of Israel were the chosen people of God? Right? Peter Craig talked about that for those of you who read it. He said, if the people of Israel are not actually the chosen people of God, they are the most arrogant race that has ever walked this earth. But we actually believe that God chose Israel to begin revealing who he is, and we're grateful for that today. We believe that the people of Israel are God's chosen people. Right? If you don't believe that, then you don't believe anything in the Old Testament. Then quit saying thanks be to God when you hear the first reading. Right? We believe that God chose Israel. We believe that God chose Abraham. We believe that God chose Moses. And he extends it, and he extends it, and he extends it to where we are today. Right? It's called the scandal of particularity. Why is it that one particular person was chosen? That can be scandalous. Right? That's why it's called that. But we believe that, and we believe that that is how God has unfolded his plan of salvation for thousands and thousands of years to where we are today. And now, all that has been brought to fulfillment in his son, who is a descendant of these individuals. And Jesus established a new kingdom, one church, not just a few people. All right. So... This whole united family we talked about at the very beginning, this universal uh, family, God reunites the family in a universal church, right? I trust we know the word Catholic, right? The word Catholic literally means universal, right? It's the universal church that, that God has established, that Jesus has established. We want to keep in mind once again, God's original plan, that God has made us for union. He's made us for union with him, friendship with him, and union with each other, friendship with each other. And then finally, one of the things sin does most powerfully, what sin does is it divides, right? What sin does in our life with God is it divides our relationship with God. What sin does in our family is it divides our relationship with each other. What sin does in the church is it divides all sorts of things. If you look at, at so many issues today, whether it's uh, church-wise or politically, you see division, division, division. Wow, isn't that interesting? Why? Because what God's original plan is, is unity. And so we see that increasing and increasing and increasing. That is the great um, effect of sin, namely division. So we know that Jesus establishes a church. We will get much more into this. But let me kind of wrap up this whole redemption thing. We know that Jesus establishes a church and that he appoints 12 apostles to carry on his mission. Right? That's scriptural. Jesus uh, chose 12 apostles 
to carry on his uh, mission of salvation for the human race. The mission can be described twofold. The, the mission of Jesus is to make disciples, right? The business we are, we're in as a church is we're in the disciple-making business, right? That's what, that's what we do. That's why the church exists, to make disciples. Jesus says, the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching. What are the two great things the church does today? What is like our main task in, in, in making disciples? The sacraments, baptism, and teaching, right? We're still doing that 2,000 years later. The apostles have handed on their mission to their successors. The term the New Testament uses for the successors of the apostles is bishops. The word bishop in Greek means the overseer, the episcopal, the episcopacy. That is not something that we just invented. It's a term in the New Testament describing the successors of the original apostles. They're called bishops. Why do we have so much respect for our bishops? Because they're the successor of the apostles. Right? They're the successors of the apostles. And we, for 2,000 years, we have an unbroken line of what we call apostolic succession, going back to the apostles. Do you know how the apostles handed on their ministry? There's literally a ordinate, there's a rite, R-I-T-E, in which the apostles would lay hands on their successors. In a few weeks, when Father Vetter is, becomes a bishop, a bishop, becomes a true successor of the apostles, the bishop who ordains him a bishop lays hands on him, asking the Holy Spirit, there's a special prayer they say, that bishop, who ordains Father Vetter a bishop, was ordained by a bishop. That bishop was ordained by a bishop. You can literally, historically trace that back to the apostles. An unbroken chain of apostolic succession. That is an amazing thing. The apostles have chosen, uh, thankfully, to hand on their mission to their successors, um, namely the bishops. And the church carries on the mission of Jesus the Apostles today. And Jesus invites us to be part of that story, not just as spectators on the side, but actually involved in the story by living the faith in our own lives, in our own families, in our own personal life. Okay? So that brings us pretty close to 715 tonight. It's a longer one. But I just wanted to kind of show a, a brief uh, description of salvation history from creation all the way down to the time of the Apostles.